Support for the Energy Gang comes from Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital is the leading commercial solar financier in the U.S., according to Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables. That's our research arm, and they are super smart. Wonder has already supported more than 100 megawatts of small commercial solar projects, and they now have this new community solar offering that you'll hear about later in the show. It changes the game. To learn more about how Wonder can help you support your project, commercial or community or otherwise, go to wondercapital.com gtm. From Greentech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with Greentech Media. Welcome. This week, a picture of America's energy landscape in 2050, as painted by researchers in the U.S. government. And um, a lot of people think those researchers might be colorblind. Offshore wind will be non-existent. Coal will still be a prominent force. Load growth will continue and greenhouse gas emissions will only incrementally fall. It's no secret that government projections have been historically way off. But how do we fix it? We'll compare the latest modeling with today's reality, and then we'll paint some happy trees in a happy little sky. Then cancel your trip to Disneyland, stock up on Coca-Cola, and hoard as many iPhones as possible. The world's biggest companies are detailing their risks to climate change, and they are numerous. Finally, a slightly philosophical ending. Who is to blame for climate change? We know it's all of us, but do we need someone more specific to blame? Companies, politicians, or does that hinder consensus building? When I need someone to blame or build consensus with, I turn to my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine's the chair of 38 North Solutions. She's there in Washington, D.C., getting over a wicked travel flu after her jaunt to Davos. Hey, Catherine. Hey, I know who to blame. I'm blaming all 400 people on that transatlantic flight I took. <laughs> <laughs> Are you wearing a mask? I was. I have been wearing it to you know be around anybody in my family. I'm basically quarantined. But the, t- the two questions they asked when I went to the doctors was, have you been overseas recently? And I was like, yeah, yesterday. And then the second question was, have you been around anybody with a communicable disease? And I'm like, everybody. So <laughs> here I am. <laughs> I was with a bunch of rich people. They clearly have communicable disease. <laughs> we don't want to know which ones. <laughs> that is not how I travel, though. It wasn't that that second class flight. Uh, the, I mean, the second class train seats and the economy flight. That is those were not the people. Jigger Shaw's on the outskirts of D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland. Are you quarantined over there, sir? Well, I should. My uh, my son got his uh, nasty fever yesterday, so uh, so we're all hands on deck to try to figure out child care and all those things. So y'all have been getting some really decent winter weather down there in D.C. How's that been impacting your solar production, Jigger? Well, the solar production's off the charts, right? Because when it's cold... The solar panels actually do better as long as the you have clear skies. Mm-hmm. Well, not sure how the solar is doing there in the Midwest. Uh, it's really cold there. I think the temperatures this morning, we are recording on a Thursday morning, are hitting like negative 40, probably going to reach negative 50. So stay safe there, Midwesterners. Uh, this extreme freeze is putting a lot of stress on the Midwest grid and gas pipelines and fuel delivery for homes. And today is the day when we really see how stressed things get. Again, it's Thursday morning. So I went and checked the fuel mix of the Midwest regional grid 
right before we started recording. And it's currently being served by about 50% coal, 28% natural gas, 13% nuclear, and 5% wind. Gas is up 50%. Gas demand is up 50%, according to Bloomberg. So as we consider what that grid mix looks like today, what's it going to look like in 2050? The U.S. government thinks electricity growth will continue. Natural gas will continue to dominate. Coal will still play a role, although a diminished one. Nuclear will be challenged. Wind and solar will be significant, mostly solar, actually. Uh, EIA projects that wind growth will basically die off, which is one indication of some modeling problems that we're going to discuss. So this comes from the Energy Information Administration's annual Energy Outlook, an extremely dry report that gives energy analysts and pundits sweaty palms and frothing mouths due to its conservative and sometimes disconnected from reality projections. It was out this week, and uh, Twitter was a flutter with hot takes. So why is there such a disconnect with the reality going on in the energy sector, and why does it matter? So first, I've asked each of you to pick a stat from the report and compare it against reality or other projections that are out there. Catherine, what did you choose? I chose coal because it just didn't look like it made sense. It was so flat all the way out to 2050. So I reached out to the folks at the Sierra Club who run the Beyond Coal campaign who monitor this and certainly their goal is to shut down all coal by 2030. And so I asked them, like, look at these numbers and tell me what's going on here. So for comparison, EIA models 29 to 129 gigawatts of coal retirements by 2050. That's from the 2018 levels. And all the 102 gigawatts of those retirements in their case essentially happen in the next 15 years. So that's only, if you divide it out, it's only 6.8 gigawatts a year. Well, over the past four years, the Sierra Club says they've helped retire 15 gigawatts a year. So that doesn't even reflect the reality on the ground. So... If you just compare their conservative reference case of 6.8 gigawatts a year with the reality that they've been retiring 15 gigawatts a year with no signs of slowing down. So then the club also says they're targeting 80 gigawatts for retirement in the next two years alone. So by the end of 2020, and even if they were to stop right then, the EIA charts are wrong. So they would still be right in the middle of the 2050 range, which just... uh, it shows how conservative it is. And, you know, the Sierra Club really does believe that they'll retire it all by 2030. Um, so, I mean, it just, it it looks like they just didn't do anything for the last, like that, that everything <laughs> just stops being modeled after right. like 2030. It just, everything stays stagnant. And even if you read the stories like Excel and AEP, that they're moving from coal to renewables, like, all of those, just the trend lines are not even taken into consideration. And and one thing that people are trying to figure out is why EIA is projecting such high utilization rates for coal plants. So you actually do see initially in their modeling that a lot of coal plants are retired uh, consistent with today's trends. But then those retirements stop and you see much higher utilization of coal plants. Any idea why they're modeling that? I don't know. I mean, I remember the folks at UCS have said that that's sort of been happening, but that's not sustainable because you're actually not making much money by doing that. And I I can't imagine that they're going to have higher utilization rates. I don't think they can afford to. The other piece of this is that the EIA model is so complex and they don't go through and look at every single assumption every year, right? So a lot of the stuff just gets buried under, you know, mounds of assumptions. And then they just don't get to it. Like, for instance, 
uh, last year, they found that um, in the model, they were capping the total amount of wind power that could ever be produced. So no matter what the model assumptions were, there was actually a physical cap that was hardwired into the model that they had forgotten about. So Jigger, then what is your choice for a statistic that shows the disconnect from reality or just kind of confuses you as to why they modeled something a certain way out through the middle of the century? So I, you know, obviously have been talking a lot about EIA and electricity and all that stuff for years. But, you know, I was looking at the renewable fuels data. And um, I looked specifically at E85. And, you know, EIA showed that roughly 9 million BTUs or so of ethanol E85 was sold in 20. Uh, 17, and that they're projecting 238 million um, in 2038. And so I emailed the EIA folks and I was like, hey, I'm just curious why you have so much growth of E85 sales in your reference case. And they said, well, there's a lot more E85 gas stations being built. And we just assume over time they're going to, like everyone who has a flexible fuel vehicle is going to use E85. And I was like, what? I was like, so there's tons of renewable portfolio standards. There's tons of people from you know Europe that are bidding on offshore wind leases. But ethanol has no like historical precedent for people with flexible fuel vehicles using E85 in their gas tanks. But you're magically thinking we're going to increase the use of E85 by 25x in less than 20 years. Yeah. So Stephen, how about you? What stood out for you? Yeah, so I was monitoring both solar and wind projections, and they seem to be way off and all over the place. Uh, firstly, the solar projections are probably much more accurate. They they do, even in the reference case, uh, model a pretty serious explosion in solar, still very conservative compared to what other outfits like Wood Mackenzie or BNEF are projecting, um, but a huge modification from last year. So Alex Gilbert of Spark Library in a Twitter thread pointed out that solar projections this year are five to 10 times higher than 2018 projections. And that is a little bit of a head scratcher because you know, nobody in their right mind who follows this space would think that something so dramatic happened in the last year that you would need to modify your projections by that much. So it just goes to show you how much they're scrambling to keep up with market realities. The second one is for offshore wind, which I found very puzzling. They basically show no growth for offshore wind, just a handful of megawatts through 2050. And our own analysts at Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables expect that we could see somewhere around uh, 10,000 megawatts of offshore wind in the U.S. by the late 2020s, given the amount of policy momentum that we're seeing and the amount of auctions that are uh, you know, emerging and showing signs of success. So the the disconnect between the projection for offshore wind and the other modeling that I've seen from us and other prominent research outfits is really extraordinary. And then when you actually just look at onshore wind, they project within a couple of years growth for onshore wind to just stop. I mean, just like the coal plant retirement thing that you pointed out, Catherine, they wind just stops completely. And again, they blame the phase down of the tax credit. But 
everyone in the wind industry understands that there's still a lot of technological progress happening with project development and technological design, and they can still squeeze costs out of projects. Um, um, so the, the the idea that wind is just going to stop because of the changing tax environment is not predicted by anyone else aside from EIA. So those were a few of the things that stood out for me. Yeah, another piece that um, that always bugs me about any of these is that the demand side is always just completely ignored, not from a load perspective, but from a resource perspective. So you know, as we move forward, we're going to get a lot more consumer-sided resources. And it just seems like a lot of those are just not taken into consideration on any of these. Um, I did reach out to EIA to try to get a sense for you know, how do they do these. And, you know, this is, um, it goes back to the 70s. This is a reference case. They always insist that it's not a forecast. Um, and that they can only model the information that they have. So it is very, very important for people to go in and provide information and data about what's really happening out there. Because I think that sometimes those sources are limited. And I think it's important for people if they want their, you know, their industry to be really taken seriously and into consideration, they need to take that data forward to EIA so they'll make sure it's included. We need to talk about the impact now. I sent show notes around in big capital letters. I said, very important. We need to make sure we talk about solutions here or why this matters, because we've had a number of conversations about EIA. We've bashed EIA. It's pretty well known in energy circles that their modeling is extremely conservative and is always trying to catch up with technological trends. I guess it's important for people to realize why this matters for the way that national lawmakers make choices or the way that utilities make choices. How does this work its way into the way companies, corporations, utilities and lawmakers make market moving or market freezing decisions? I mean, EIA is cited by anybody who's making legislative, regulatory policy, and they're used as, all their charts are used as a Bible. And one thing I would really want to highlight here is that when the administrator, Capuano, was going through her confirmation hearing in the Senate, there were a few senators, I think Senator Hirono was one of them, and Senator Heinrich from New Mexico, asked her about the greenhouse gas emission charts that they always include and in making sure that they still model greenhouse gas emissions. And, and they asked her about climate change, and she pretty much stonewalled on climate change. But this time when they put out that outlook, those greenhouse gas emission charts were not included. So I would expect to hear about that. She is next week going to present the outlook to Senate Energy Committee again, and those same senators are going to be in the room. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if they didn't notice that the charts that they made sure they asked that she included, where she said, yes, 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 we include them, even though she would not discuss climate change, um, they did not include them. So what does that mean exactly? Well, it's disturbing because EIA is, for all of its foibles, is supposed to be an independent agency. It's not supposed to be dictated by the whims of the politics in the White House. And so, which means that we've been able to... Um, you know, criticize it no matter who's in the White House for, for, you know, whatever they're lacking and whatever they're missing. But this seems political in nature. And that's that's going down a very dangerous path because people do use their information 
um, you know, as a baseline and in, in reference case for for all of these policy decisions. For good or for bad, you know, we're starting to have a real impact on discrediting EIA within the electricity rate making process. And you're starting to see almost every public service commission now has so little faith and confidence in EIA's work that they're bringing in green tech media's work, they're bringing in a lot of other people's work as equals into the data process. So where it used to be, we would cite Green Tech Media or Wood McKenzie and say, look, this is what it's showing. They'd say, well, no, we're still going to stick with the AA. Now they're saying, well, all of these references actually have equal weighting, um, which I think you know is unfortunate because I would rather have fixed EIA, but I think they're deciding to become increasingly irrelevant. No, but I think uh, there was a there was a Texas wind plant that was canceled because of natural gas prices that were from EIA charts. So I I think it actually does have an impact, and I think it would be really important to try to make sure that it is depoliticized, stays non-political, and that we try to fix what they're doing so that it it really so that it can stand up. I think it's important to have a federal agency like this. So I want to talk about solutions. How do we fix this problem either internally with an EIA or in partnership with external partners? Uh, I dug up this 10-point plan from Michael Liebrick, who uh, founded Bloomberg New Energy Finance. He's a well-known uh, pundit and expert on this industry. And he's obviously been very critical of the International Energy Agency and the Energy Information Administration. And so he put out this 10-point plan on Twitter and on LinkedIn uh, maybe a year or two ago that I thought was very relevant. So I want to list just a couple of his ideas and then get some of your ideas on how you change this situation. Because most people agree it's a situation that does need to be changed. It has real-world consequences. So he says, step one, own the problem. If you or your organization has been producing bad energy forecasts for decades, do an autopsy. That's probably what any organization should do when they're doing something wrong. Step two, address unconscious human bias. RWE rolled out unconscious bias training across the company after writing off billions of euros in bad fossil fuel investments. Three, Deconstruct your models layer by layer and find all the hidden inbuilt assumptions that constrain change buried over years. Four, run your models. Don't discard outputs just because they look stupid. Ask what constrains stupid outcomes and could yield innovation or social change. And he goes on and on and on. But really what he's uh, asking these organizations to do is to look inward and truly question the types of models and types of decisions that they're making that go into running those models. And we haven't seen that yet at all from EIA or from IEA. Your thoughts? Well, you know, I think that one of the things that precedes all of those comments is that you actually have to have a group that wants to do better, right? I mean, when you look at, you know, on Twitter, for instance, Jason Bordoff, who runs the Columbia, you know, sort of energy practice and you know, was, was pretty active in the Obama administration, even this year basically said, stop eating on EIA. They're doing a great job. They're creating a reference case. They're not actually serving the needs that you thought, right? And so when both Obama officials and Trump officials are basically saying, we're doing our job, we're doing it fine, there's nothing to see here, 
Well, then they're not going to read some email from Michael Liebrecht to like actually look under the hood of all their assumptions <laughs> and start changing anything, right? Like, you know, like when we went after the EAA hard under the Obama administration, they never admitted fault. In fact, they went so far, Daniel Cohen over at um, Rice University is probably the most articulate person in the planet on this. And he's written op-ed after op-ed, like letter after letter, report after report for EIA's benefit to see changes, very specific things that he's found that's wrong in the model, etc. And they sent an entire letter back to him finally saying, we're so sorry you're so worked up about this, but we reviewed everything and we're fine. So one thing that could happen is that Congress could do something. Congress could say, we want you to look at all of your assumptions. We want you to gather additional information. We want you to to deconstruct um, some of these models and and challenge your assumptions and have sort of an open source ability and transparency for people to come in and you know show you how how to be different and how to think differently about this. So Congress does have you know, jurisdiction over. EIA. So they could do something and try to try to push them on this. I guess we just need Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeting about it and we can start to get some movement on this issue. <laughs> well, I mean, in all seriousness, I am curious, Catherine, how that works, right? I mean, you know, I've had several senators call me about the Green New Deal and saying, hey, what are the good ideas you have? And I said, well, you know, just, you know, enforcing current law would be interesting. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, you know, current law says that every new vehicle that is purchased by the federal government should be a flexible fuel vehicle or an electric vehicle. They're not doing that. They never did it during the Obama administration, and they're not doing it now. And then when they do buy flexible fuel vehicles, like, they don't actually fill them up with E85. And so, even though EIA assumes that they will. And so, like, I'm just trying to figure out, like, has Congress just lost its ability to do oversight? No, I don't. Yes. I don't think so. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess it totally depends on uh, what you're t- what you're talking about. But I think it doesn't hurt to bring it to their attention in any case. Well, let me be the defender of EIA here then. Jason Bordoff does have a point. They are providing a very specific model around a very specific set of parameters that guides their mission as an organization. And they have extremely smart people working on very large sets of data. So when you look at the constraints of how they operate as an organization, like they're doing quite a good job. And it's really the lawmakers and the, the decision makers at companies that are not putting this data into context and are making poor decisions. So shouldn't it rest on those people and not EIA? Uh, you know, one could make the argument that EIA is doing just fine work and, and their reference case is their reference case and people are making bad decisions with that data. No, I just think I don't know that it's up to policymakers to understand modeling. I, I, that's I, I don't know that you that you can hold them accountable to, you know, modeling that doesn't that that isn't accurate or doesn't project well. I uh, so I I think EIA does. But they start, have a lot of smart people around them. Yeah, but right. I mean, like they have staffers. People have executives. Have people who are supposed to be doing this research for them. I mean, there's a lot of people around these decision makers that should be able to put this data into context. Right, and they're deciding that EIA is no longer a credible source of data for future projections. That you can use EIA for historical information because they're very accurate on that. But that for all future projections, if they use EIA, they will lose money and their stock price will go to zero. 
Yeah, and EIA will tell you they're not in the business of projecting, that they don't want to be. But at the same time, I would much rather them get it right and, and move move more into, um, you know, not necessarily projections, but at least get their models better by bringing more people in, by taking in more data. And I think we have people on the outside, whether it's trade associations that represent renewables or anybody else, I think it's also the onus is on us to get in and not just complain, not tell them they're doing it wrong, but actually bring them real data. Coming up, the crazy mounting risks that companies are facing due to climate change. First, though, developers have historically taken some pretty big risks with community solar. That's because financing options are slow and inflexible, making the community solar product itself inflexible and hard for consumers. Wonder Capital, our sponsor, can help. Wonder just launched a progressive new community solar offering dedicated to financing projects in ways that other lenders can't. For example, with Wonder, community solar projects can have up to 100% residential offtake, and in addition, hefty termination penalties, long-term contracts, and subscriber FICO scores are not required. Head on over to wondercapital.com/gtm to submit your community solar projects today, and as always, Wonder can help with your commercial solar projects too, providing loan terms within 2 business days. Wonder Capital, that's wonder with a U. Wonder Capital, powering the commercial solar industry. So PG&E officially filed for bankruptcy protection this week, setting in motion a long, complex, and emotional legal battle over the future of the utility. Many onlookers are calling this the first major climate bankruptcy. It was, after all, record wildfires caused by extreme conditions that pushed PG&E over the edge. And it raises a scary question, who's next? Infrastructure companies are certainly at risk, particularly utilities, but so are semiconductor makers, hospitality companies, insurance firms, well, pretty much anyone operating in areas prone to extreme weather. But don't take my word for it. The world's biggest companies are categorizing these risks themselves. And according to two new reports, one from the Carbon Disclosure Project and one from a group called 427, they are facing these risks now and figuring out how to manage them. These aren't replace plastic straws or use a little less water type of problems. These are harden your manufacturing plants and prepare for a massive drop in customers type of problems. Coke is worried about access to water. AT&T is worried about cell tower networks getting knocked out. Disney is scared that people will stop coming to its park. The list goes on and on. Jigger, was there a particular case study from either of these reports that stood out to you? Well, you know, the the Disney one was really fascinating to me just because, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you have this artificial, you know, wonderland placed in the middle of nowhere in Orlando, Florida. And, um, you know, and I think what people are starting to recognize is that that middle of nowhere is actually a somewhere and there's climate risks around that, right? And whether it's, um, you know, weather disruptions or whether it's access to water disruptions or it's access to, um, you know, or just, you know, getting hit with hurricanes or other things that, that this stuff, like, you know, that when we talk about the 12 years that we have left that, you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez keeps repeating or other things. It's not that I think people are saying that we have 12 years left to live. I think they're just saying that at some point, the weather patterns and then the access to resources become so unpredictable that that you just like even can't even stop planning anymore, right? It just goes haywire. Catherine, what about you? What was something that stood out for you in terms of a particular company modeling its risk? 
Yeah, so there were there was one that was like the, the the higher level, and then I also reached out to Apple specifically. But just looking at all of the different types of disruptions um, was amazing because then it, it makes you think about how things work. <laughs> so, for example, Merck in Puerto Rico. They were disrupted. Their supply chain was disrupted because of the infrastructure damage from the hurricane. So they couldn't get supplies in on roads. You know, they could still maintain electricity because they have a system, but the supply chain was disrupted. Then companies like CVS that have all these stores, all these locations have to close during hurricanes. And they had, they lost $57 million because of locations having to close. Not to mention that those impact customers who are trying to get medication and other supplies. Then companies like AT&T that have cell towers at risk because of storm. So there are all these, there's supply chain issues, there are operations operational issues. And then there are also actual customer issues, like how are customers impacted? Bank of America nervous about mortgage defaults in areas that are flooded now that have never had never been flooded before. So it's just every single sector that's impacted. And Jigger, I would also note that the 12 years, the 2030 is what the IPCC report says, that's the time that we have to to really start correcting. So I think all these companies are kind of looking at what's going to happen between now and then. Did you see the visa part where they warned that global warming could increase global pandemics and armed conflict problems that would in turn cause fewer people to travel? Yeah, it was. That's amazing. And like, this is not even to mention cruise lines, which, of course, hard to cruise lines, utilities that are all all these utilities on the coastline, like Nextera, Con Ed, PSEG, Dominion. I mean, just every single sector. Do, 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 does this make you feel a little cynical that it's going to be like a credit card company or Disney that gets people to wake up to the severity of the problem and, and not like some famous energy expert or a, a well-known politician? It's going to be like the, the most consumerist companies that are causing people to actually realize what the hell's going on. Welcome to capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, you know, what, who was it that said that Mad Max was the best climate change movie? Ever. It was like, uh, I mean, like, I mean, that's kind of what Visa is talking about, is that like we're potentially heading towards a Mad Max situation. Well, I know that some of these companies, while being more forthcoming about these risks, have been a little concerned about the survey itself. And Catherine, you did talk to Apple about the makeup of the survey. So how did they characterize it? Yeah, so this, the Carbon Disclosure Project, you know, really measures, gets companies, and they have, I think, 7,000 companies globally and 1,800 in the U.S. that have responded to this survey that really ask questions about, you know, their operating risk, whether it's from heat, stress, water, floods, sea level rise, hurricanes, etc. And one of the questions that they require everybody to answer is, what is the positive that could happen as an impact of climate change. And they force everybody to answer it. And so there was a big story written about how, you know, something like Apple thinks iPhones will become more vital and, you know, this is good for their business. Well, when I talked to Apple, they were like, this is, we did not want to answer that question because we actually don't think there's an upside. And we also gave that answer the least weight. We assigned it to the lowest weight when we responded because we actually don't think there's a good 
there's a good side to it. And, and that that question doesn't really get at risk mitigation. Now, Apple does have a plan for climate change. You know, they have started really beefing up on renewables. They're doing a project in Oregon with water um, storage to make sure that there's enough water for emergencies, whether it's for a data center or for the community. So they really are proactive about looking at impacts, but that there was that question in the survey that everybody had to answer. And I think it was an airline that said, well, I guess more people will fly to get out of countries that are badly impacted. I mean, they're like people are <laughs> yeah, scratching yeah. their head trying to come up with whatever they could because they were forced to answer the question. Yeah, visas like, oh, people will buy more uh prepping materials, more canned goods for their bunkers. Uh, in all seriousness, I'm so glad you brought that up because I crapped all over these co- companies on Twitter. I did mention some of the so-called positives and Apple answered the question by saying that they could see increased demand for iPhones, uh, which could function as a flashlight for people in disasters. Uh, and they would also uh, have a higher demand for products like the Apple Watch with SOS functions. Home Depot said that they would see higher demand for air conditioners. Uh, I think a pharmaceutical company said that they would see higher disease rates and so therefore higher demand for drugs. It's It made me feel extremely cynical, but I'm glad to hear that at least Apple according to your conversation, was hesitant to answer that question, knowing that it looks really bad. But it actually is true, too. You know, it is it, like th- that's not that's not false. Uh, all those things will provide some weird, scary economic upside for some of these companies, too. So it's not like it's it's not true. Yeah, I think the issue is that asking that question doesn't have anything to do with your risk exposure. And it doesn't it doesn't show how you're mitigating the risk. All it shows is that like, oh, maybe there's some weird, unintended positive consequence from it. And so I think that's just that's the nature of the survey. And I think that's just something we have to keep in mind. The one other thing I was uh, interested in is the fact that Starbucks did so middle of the road on the survey. Um that Starbucks sort of like got a C on climate change and no score on forests and all these other areas. Like you, you would have thought that Starbucks would have taken this process a lot more seriously. Well, let's ask Howard Schultz about it, huh? <laughs> mm. <laughs> a lot of people are asking him a lot of questions these days, so maybe climate can be one of them. If you ever, if any of you see him at a campaign event, make sure to ask him about Starbucks' record on climate change. I guess the final question will be, what do we do about this? Like, how do we move the needle? It's extraordinary that so many companies are now disclosing all these risks. And I actually do believe that the more we talk about this and the more that companies actually talk about these severe risks, the more climate change becomes real for people. But ultimately, you still have uh, only a handful of companies on the S&P 500 that are publicly disclosing the climate effects on potential earnings, uh, you know, weather-related events, for example. Uh, I think in fiscal year 2017, according to reporting from Barron's, 15% of the S&P 500 publicly disclosed um, earnings impacts from extreme weather events. So you still have a lot of companies that are just not factoring in climate change or extreme weather events to what they disclose to investors and and how it impacts earnings. How do we change that? Is that changing? And is it changing fast enough? 
Well, there was a lot of discussion about this in Davos. I was in a whole panel that didn't really have to do with energy, but had to do with disclosure and um, and the need to have consistent disclosure requirements, have them be very transparent, really like changes the way people think about their business, changes the way investors and stockholders think about their business. I think there will be more pressure put on companies to do that. Um, I don't know if we're moving fast enough, but I, I definitely think it is on a lot of brains of corporations right now because it's it is a huge risk that they're they're out there they have a, an enormous amount of liability um, because of climate well we should also say that you know people who don't participate in these kinds of disclosure projects have something to hide mm-hmm and that's what people have been saying particularly for oil and gas companies and that's why they're facing so many lawsuits uh, from from litigators and from investors, it's it's that, that they've known these risks for a long time and haven't disclosed them. Well, that and that they they don't want to admit that they don't care to do anything about it. I mean, that's the thing that's that's so shocking, right? Is for those companies who don't participate in this, they are not saying to their employees that hey, we have these risks to our company and that we should actually be taking them seriously. And I would like for all of you to figure out how you might protect our company from these risks in the future and what changes in product mix or supply chain or the things that we should do. And so they're almost deliberately just making sure that their company becomes a bad investment. Mm -hmm. Well, this actually brings us to the final discussion, which I wanted to bring up in this episode because it's so directly related to the CDP numbers and the types of risks that these companies are disclosing or hiding. So according to a 2017 CDP report, the top 100 companies in the world are responsible for 71% of global industrial greenhouse gas emissions. And that brings us to this bigger question. Do we blame them for climate change? Or are we as individuals to blame because we have such high demand for their products and services? Are lawmakers to blame who are denying this problem? How exactly do we pass on blame? And I bring this up because of a speech last week at the Davos summit from Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old climate activist. At one side event, she sat in front of some of the most powerful people in the world, including U2's Bono, and pointed the finger right at them. And here's what she said. Quote, some people say that the climate crisis is something that we have all created, but that is not true because if everyone is guilty, then no one is to blame and someone is to blame. Some people, some companies, some decision makers in particular have known exactly what priceless values they have been sacrificing to make unimaginable amounts of money. And I think many of you here today belong to that group of people. Wow. uh, Really powerful. Her comments were lauded by some on social media. Others were critical, saying that kind of shaming hurts progress. So um, both of you, I know, have a take on this. Considering that, Catherine, you just came back from Davos, it's a good time to think about this question in the context of that event. How effective was that messaging? And do you think she's right? Yeah, I think... She is incredibly effective and she's right. And the thing is, these people have heard this before. This She's not the only one saying it. I mean, I went to several panels there 
where Christiana Figueres was on them, Jane Goodall, Sir David Attenborough, all these people are saying the same thing. Now, they are not young children who are pointing at them saying, you are ruining my future. Um, so her voice is very powerful in that respect. And I'm, you know, I'm, she's an amazing young woman. But um, I mean, these people have heard it before. And I think, yes, they're the ones that need to hear it. Because in that context, their hands are a little bit forced. They're forced to make commitments. They're forced to look at themselves among their peers. And I think it's the right venue to do it. Now, I think in the end, the question is not necessarily about who's to blame, but who needs to fix it. So I mean, I think we need to move quickly beyond blame. But I think she's right. Jigger, you posted about this on LinkedIn, and it stirred quite a debate on your page. How did that debate break down? I My own sense of this is that there is not enough shaming going on around the world at this point. You know, I, I, as someone who has worked my butt off around the positive side of climate and, you know, climate wealth and all the other things that I do, and I still believe them, um, it is true that none of the G20 have taken any steps whatsoever to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies, even though they promised to do that 10, 15 years ago, right? There are a lot of people that have really abdicated their responsibility to like really, you know, do something, just little things. I mean, there was a fake letter that was put out um, on behalf of Larry Fink of BlackRock uh, by some activists uh, before his annual letter came out, I think it was last week, um, basically saying that BlackRock was going to divest itself of all coal, etc. Because for all of the good stuff that Larry says on a regular basis, they haven't divested. And in fact, BlackRock's still one of the largest investors in the world, in coal and fossil fuel investments, right? And so, like, people write these great letters, they put out these great pronouncements, which is why I hate all the press releases that mayors and university presidents put out in the United States. But then they don't actually turn that into action. And I do think that people deserve to take some blame for that. I I agree. It brings us to this practical question, though, who takes the most blame? So the top 100 companies are responsible for the vast majority of industrial emissions. Are they primarily to blame? Is it the leaders of the G20 countries who make these commitments and then walk away and don't actually follow up with those commitments or just issue some press releases? Um, So are we all to blame equally or should we pinpoint uh, one of those actors more than others? That's what I'm trying to figure out practically. Yeah. So from my perspective, I do pinpoint people who are in a position of of influence and formality, right? So like, for instance, you know, Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live, has a law in place basically saying that climate change is an existential threat and that we need to do something about it, right? And so when the county commissioner doesn't do anything about it, really nothing, and he's as this progressive that just got elected into, into office, then I blame him absolutely equally to ExxonMobil and to other people. I, for me, it's, it's more about if you're going to make promises and you're going to get all of the kudos that you wanted from putting out the press release, I definitely blame you equally for not implementing. Yeah, so a, a couple of things. What I, I don't think we should give companies a pass that say, well, we only sell what people buy. Like, hey, we're just meeting demand. Because... You know, Apple invented the iPhone not based on what people were asking for, and yet now everybody's asking for it. So I just I do not agree with that line of reasoning. I also think 
corporations are not monolithic, and a lot of them have started a transition and have completely changed their business models to be much more a part of a circular economy or all clean energy. Um, and you see some of these, you know, what would tra- traditionally fossil companies in Europe changing over to renewables. So I think that there is progress being made, but I think it is it's le- we do need to hold accountable industries that won't change and industries that perpetuate miscommunication and misunderstanding and you know the, a lack of factual evidence um because they want to protect their business models um and and with that in mind i think we are all then responsible for making sure that we put pressure on our politicians and all of our corporations we that we you know we, we um, purchase correctly, we make sure that we hold people accountable, and that we ca- make our governments do something because companies aren't going to act until a government makes it in their business interest to act. I mean, they just, most of them do not act unless they see some way they're going to make money by doing so. So we have to make sure that governments are, um, you know, are overseeing that and making sure that regulations are put in a place that force the hand. It does, though, beg the question, of how vehemently we should hold people accountable. Because I, you know, it's just, you know, for me, for instance, there are all these presidential candidates now announcing to run for president on the Democrat side. And they're all saying that they care about a Green New Deal. But you and I both know that most of them haven't done one single thing on climate change in their entire political career. And so at some point, like, do you hold people accountable and be like, you can't just say that you're for a Green New Deal and then not have done a single thing to promote climate solutions. Uh, Make us feel good, Catherine. What's your free electron to wrap up the show? (laughs) Okay. Um, So when I was in Davos last week, there was a report that was announced called Mission Possible, and it's from the Energy Transitions Commission, which is a group of people globally that have come together to try to figure out how do we reduce emissions from really hard-to-abate sectors. And so those sectors could be, you know, heavy-duty heavy duty transport, shipping, aviation, industry, you know, like cement, plastics, steel, you know, how do we deal with those segments? And so they have some ideas about how to abate those sectors, which have been pretty gnarly and we're not making great progress on. And so I'd be interested in people's feedback on that report. Some There was a lot of chatter about it at Davos. There were some uh, knockdown, dragout fights on the panels about it. And um, so I'd be interested to, to hear what people think. But we do have to address those sectors. The issue is how do we do it and how do we do it pretty quickly? I feel like over the course of months as we're doing these podcasts, there are certain themes that come up. And there have been a number of reports that have been released in the last month showing emissions problems in other sectors as we're having this debate about how best to decarbonize the electricity sector. And everyone's kind of waving their hands and saying, no, no, look over here. These are these are also a really important, if not more important, places to decarbonize. And we don't quite have the solutions yet. And we're, of course, covering that here as well. And and it just feeds into that narrative that I'm clearly seeing play out right now, at least academically. It's, it's, it's largely coming from a lot of reports and figures showing uh, that we're not making great progress in, in some of those other areas. Well, and energy efficiency always comes out as the thing we have to do the most. 
course. Absolutely. As many of our listeners reminded us after our efficiency episode last week. <laughs> Thank you for that. Jigger, what's your free electron? So I'm not overly political on the Democrat side in terms of like all these presidential candidates, but I have to say that, you know, Jay Inslee announced that he's, you know, sort of putting together an exploratory committee and then running for president. And um, he his quote was um, basically uh, uh, what WMUR TV said, if Inslee jumps in the race, he likely won't be the front runner. But students said his exclusive focus on climate and carbon emission resonates with them. And I have to say that, like, I do think it is really awesome that you have one candidate who's going to just be all about climate all the time. I mean, that that's really interesting. Yeah, and I think all the Dem candidates candidates are going to be talking about it. So I look, I look forward to a lot of hot debates. Yeah, well, that brings me to mine, which is around Elizabeth Warren. She has been trying to stand out by being extremely wonky about certain subjects. And the New York Times recently did a profile of her from the stump. And the the the, uh, the headline is, her strategy is to stand out by nerding out. And one of the quotes was from a New Hampshire rally where she says, you want me to get this crowd up on net metering? Do I have any net metering wonks out there? I'm a big believer in net metering. I just I just thought that was that was so great because uh, we're you know not a lot of politicians taking the limelight today talk in great detail about uh, wonky uh, policy ideas and the fact that she's out there attempting to run her campaign on these wonkier issues and around energy and climate in particular is quite refreshing. So we'll see if that works on the campaign stump and whether other politicians follow her lead. But I suspect that climate and energy and the details of energy policy will emerge more throughout the next two years of campaigning. Oh, geez, two years of campaigning. Oh, I love these issues, but I don't think I can listen to them in the campaign context for two years, guys. It's less than two years. (laughs) What is it? How many years? How long is it? How long is it? I can't keep track anymore. It's a lifetime. (laughs) I was still writing 2018 until like two days ago. <laughs> well, that's it, folks. Uh, this is the, our last episode for January of 2019. What a month it's been. What a year we have ahead of us. If you like this show, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. Uh, we are posting this on the 31st. So technically, you have one day to give us a creative review. And we will choose the best review on Apple Podcasts and give that person a free subscription to GTM Squared. One lucky listener will get that uh, award. And that is a that's you got a lot there in that package uh, for a two hundred and forty nine dollar value. So go go give us a rating and review. Also follow us on social media. The best place to get us is Twitter. You can get Catherine Jigger, me, and the Energy Gang there, and we do interact with people a lot. And we get your feedback and try to incorporate it into the show. So thanks for that as well. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. We will catch you next week. 